Hello and welcome to Reclaiming My Theology, a podcast seeking to take our theology back from ideas and systems that oppress. I'm your host, Brandi Miller, and today I'm joined by my friend, human, co-worker, and professor of theology at Garrett Theological Seminary, Dr. Brian Bantam. We wanted to take another pass talking about patriarchal foundations and offer some different ways of thinking about the Bible, our lives, and reality. We also talk about some of the ways that there might be potential to subvert the often present mediocrity of manhood, especially in Christian spaces. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, or you can join us financially on Patreon at patreon.com slash Our next Patreon workshop coming up next month will be childbirth education for everyone with the amazing Sarah Lay. So thank you all so much for all of the ways that you support. And with that, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Brian Bantam. And honestly, peep near the end for some dope exegesis on Mary. How it works. We have to have a, a purpose to talk. And that, that's the entryway. Yes, and formal conversations always have an end in sight, which I feel like for introverted people, a, a conversation with no end in sight is some version of earthly hell. Right. This is why this is why I teach and don't pastor. <laughs> and this is why I do media and don't pastor. <laughs> well, Dr. Brian Bantam, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate your time. I know we see each other in funny and different spaces regularly, but it's nice to get to hang out with you in this context a little bit. It's great to be with you, Brandy. Well, Brian, I, you know, we've been in this series on patriarchy for months and months. I had intended to do four episodes on patriarchy to gear up for a series on purity culture. And the more that I started to drill into this idea of patriarchy, the more I recognized that Christianity and Christian practice and our U.S. politics and the world complicate this matter such that we need to talk way more about it than we do both in regular life and in normal time. So I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about patriarchy and masculinity and how we learn those things today. But I always ask folks who come on, for folks who don't know them, to describe what does it mean to be you? What does it mean to be me? Oh, that's such a, that's a good question. Um, so what it means to be me is to always have ideas but not be sure about them. Um, to always want to do something a little bit differently because if you've done it the way other people have done it, then why bother? <laughs> um, and to always try to nestle into a sense of home. I'm kind of like that dog that's like that circles around a bed to try to find like that perfect little spot <laughs> just to just to rest and settle and be. That's amazing. This is a question I would not normally ask people, but are you a four on the Enneagram? I am. Okay. I am. <laughs> that comes through in the very, the, the, like, if, you, if I do something like someone else, then why do it at all? It's, it's like one of those things where like, I, 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 I listen to the description of a four, and like, that sounds awful, but I couldn't imagine being anything else. And so I'm just oh, like, I, yeah. oh. this sounds, sounds so annoying. I can't do that, guys, because everyone else has done it. But why bother? I'm told that I have a wing four on my little three, so yeah, I, I feel I'm like not I can see it. Yeah, I'm not personable enough for um, the the two. I'm not caring or empathetic enough, so just <laughs> you know, as a frame of reference. <laughs> uh, du- duly noted. I'll I'll make sure I, I I look for that. Well, tell me a little bit about your sense of vocation or calling in the world. Yeah, how does your work and the way you think about your work intersect with yeah how you live and what you do? Yeah, well, I was I was called to ministry um, pretty soon after becoming a Christian at fi- at fifteen. Um, so pretty dramatic. I mean, it was a pretty dramatic conversion. My dad had gotten cancer. 
through that process, uh, he and I's relationship had gotten reconciled. My mom's relationship had gotten reconciled with him. And, and, and I really got introduced to the church as a place of home. So salvation for me was never an idea. Like, so I said a little prayer in my basement, but salvation was always this community that kind of just almost came out of nothing when I followed my dad to church. Um, and really ever since then, like that question of belonging, of home, of, of who I am in relationship to the world, um, it's just always been a kind of constant question. And uh, and theology became a way for me to think about that because as I started, I, I started off as a history major, um, really interested in why people made the decisions that they made and, and how communities formed over time. Um, and, and I used to think that like, and, and history had such a such a powerful impact on me. I thought, oh my gosh, like if only, if people only knew the real history, then we all of this bad stuff wouldn't happen. Um, and then little did I know that, oh, it's not just about what you know, what you don't know. It's also about these more existential questions of identity and mm. how identity gets formed and why, pe- what are those kind of immaterial but like present conditions that, that shape people into who they think they should belong to and who they shouldn't belong to. Um, and at the end of the day, history couldn't answer that question for me. And so mm. it was theology. And um, and increasingly now theology and the arts, because now I'm not even sure systematic theology can can help us. I think it's <laughs> I think it's stories and poetry and um, and, and life together. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of and, and so all of those things are nested in there are questions of race, questions of gender, um, questions of nation um and and to me this idea of identity is kind of this engine that runs inside of all of those things all the time and so you can't separate any of them out because they're always kind of Mm. nestled together which i feel like is so complicated as a person who works in like christian academia which loves to compartmentalize all parts of life and then intersect them like maybe one at a time like it's always a two-circle venn diagram Mm -hmm. I'm curious how that shift happened for you from this kind of systematic theology can't answer these questions to moving toward the arts as a way of understanding identity and belonging and answering some of those questions. Yeah, well, it, it actually started off really, it started off really early, although I, I didn't realize it was starting, you know, like so many, so many of these things. Um, I, I was writing my, my dissertation or, or planning my dissertation, and I was write, trying to to write a theology of kind of interracial existence, um, of what a kind of black mixed race identity means and what are some of the complicated problems of of ways that mixed race identity has been articulated recently. Um, But then also what is the kind of possibility of it? Essentially, I was trying to make sense of myself, um, you know, (laughs) when it really comes down to it. And and I was just really struggling trying to find, because all all of the information was really just about you know, history of race, or you have a kind of black theological constructs. Um, and it wasn't until I found Langston Hughes's poem, um, Mulatto, and then uh, Neela Larson's novel, Passing, that all of a sudden, all of these things made sense to me. Because what they all, because what the literature did, and the arts did, is it, it helped me to see the ways that the race, the, the mixed race question is never just a question of race, it's also a question of gender. 
that if you, as so for a biracial a black biracial person it made a big difference about whether or not you were a man or a woman mm-hmm. in terms of the work that your body was doing in the world how you were read um and the and the options available to you um but at the same time what the literature also did for me was it helped me to kind of nuance that we are never we never kind of gather all the history set the choices in front of us and say oh like what are, what what should i do right now um Oh, I think I, I think this is the more viable option for my personhood. <laughs> yeah. No, we never do that, right? Yeah. Um, and so, what the novels and the po- poetry does is it helps. It kind of gives voice to and materializes those very indiscreet moments and choices and decisions and things that aren't even choices, but intuitions and leanings that slowly build up over time to the point where we find ourselves in one place all of a sudden. Um, and so for me, that that was, so my dissertation was really, and in, in the in the book that came out of it was really built around three novels. So Neela Larson's passing, um, uh, the autobiography 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 of an ex colored man, um, James Weldon Johnson, and uh, Charles Chestnut's House Behind the Cedars, mm-hmm. all written within 10 to 15 years of one another, but all with very different politics of what a black mixed body meant in the world and how to navigate it um so yeah so for me like that's kind of where it started and then after a while it became you know why what is it what is theology shouldn't just be talking about these things it should actually be creating these things like what if this is the theological voice an artistic theo- what would a theolog an artistic theological voice look like and that's kind of what i've been thinking about more more and more lately I so appreciate that. And I ask you in part because I know a lot of folks who listen to the podcast are trying, as we're trying to reclaim our theology, have been given uh, this notion that any kind of life with God is found in either the Bible alone, or if we're going to be interdisciplinary at all, it's like the Bible and history, but selective history and nothing else. Mm -hmm. And I think that what you're offering is a picture of a broader picture that I think people experience intuitively, but maybe can't put words to which is letting uh, the Bible be interpreted through our lived experience, through reality, through embodiment. I recently read a a forthcoming book by Dr. Randy Woodley, where he's talking about how there are four or more voices that should be shaping how we experience the divine. And some of the ones that he refers to are community, Bible, creation itself, and the human conscience. And I was like, oh, yeah. And then you add the arts to that, and you, you get this web of interpretation that does the thing that I think a lot of particularly patriarchal masculine Christianity hates, which is creates uncertainty, creates fluidity, creates space, creates uh, existence outside of binaries. And so I think that there's something really freeing in what you're talking about for folks, which says, I can apply all parts of life to my life with God. And those are all valid means of interpretation. They get to shape me. Yeah, absolutely. And and I would say even more that they're all, all the parts of your life are also revelations of God. Right. So it, it moves both ways. So it's not just that your experiences become a hermeneutic or a way of interpreting scripture, but it's actually that your life becomes revelatory of, of God. Right. And so we become then windows 
to others so that they might be able to see God in different kinds of ways. Um, and one of the, my favorite things to do, and, and I, I, I do this more and more now, is like when you go to scripture, though, um, especially with this kind of artistic material lens, is then you take something like, you know, you take a story like, you know, Jesus healing the blind man with the dirt, you know, and picking up the dirt. So a kind of artistic lens then says, well, what did the dirt feel like in your hands? Mm-hmm. You know, what did it feel like to have that mud like pressed into his eyes when you didn't even realize the hand, like all of a sudden hands are touching your face, right? Which of yeah. course, you know, would be a really scary moment. Um, and then all of a sudden there's this kind of, this different kind of sense about what's happening in these gospel stories. Um, and I think then the reverse becomes, there's a really beautiful way of seeing spirit move in our lives and the ways that our lives are conjoined and and moving with spirit in different kinds of ways. So everything from a bird singing to a, you know, a profound note that's that's heard or, you know, something that happens just really innocuous at a stop sign. Um, yeah. Those are all moments for, for revelation and spirit and um, profundity. Which I think is so interesting, especially as we're having this conversation that we'll move into talking about patriarchy in a second, because dimensionality to me robs patriarchy of its power. Like patriarchy really only works if you have a flat understanding, a flat and binary understanding of the world. And a level of fear that says if you don't apply or if you don't give yourself to that binary, that there will be consequences for your life. And so I think that that kind of artistic interpretation helps us to have a different hermeneutic, as you say, not just for the scriptures, but for our own lives. And I think that that idea of our lives being revelatory is pretty terrifying to many people who grew up in a like sky daddy theology that says like, God's going to strike you down if you do anything outside of the Bible in this like really weird way. And so I want to talk about patriarchy a little bit because I know you've spent a lot of your lifetime work, interpersonal work, engaging with patriarchy. And right, you are a professor and a scholar and I got a private liberal arts education. So it gave me a $200,000 vocabulary. And so I'm going to use so we're going to use some of these words that I know are not the most accessible, but we'll do our best to define them along the way, because I think they just help sometimes complicated words help encapsulate ideas more effectively than a string of other words might. Yeah. And so I want to talk about patriarchy, both as ontological and epistemological realities, because I think in many church spaces, at least for me, I was taught about gender and really sexuality and all things as ontological reality. So ontological being concerned with what is true or real, or I like to use the word inherent um, or like immovable. And so patriarchy and masculinity and like God's desire for men to lead was all this kind of ontological reality rather than epistemological reality, something that is learned or that is shaped through our knowledge. And so I would love if you could talk a little bit about how you've learned patriarchy and and what that looks like, because I think that helps to engage with those kind of ontological and epistemological questions and might give us some space to untangle what many of us, while we ideologically might be like, that's not ontological, still might live as though those patriarchal ideas are. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me, um, I'll, I'll kind of add to your really helpful um, to framework. And, and one of the, the, the folks that's, that's really helped me to think through these ideas and um, my, my students will tell you like, this person like probably comes like just under Jesus, probably in terms of like people that I reference. I might actually reference him more than Jesus. I'm not sure, but <laughs> we'll just, we'll pretend like he's second. Um, um, and so this theorist, Stuart Hall, uh, talks about this question of identity. Um, and and the way that he talks about it is he says, you know, we 
we can't really think of identity as a fixed, stable thing, right? So this is what, what the way that you're describing ontological, the way that sometimes we would talk about it as an essentialist way of thinking mm -hmm. about identity, right? That um, this is fundamentally who you are down to the core, and therefore there are certain politics, certain ways of being, certain roles that you need to occupy that are attached to that essential understanding. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one side of it. But then he says that actually... Um, we need to better understand identity as a process of identification. That is to say, um, it is a way that we, the world is kind of saying who we are. So this is like your epistemological frame, right? Or sometimes we would say social construction, um, mm -hmm. the, the gender is socially constructed. But essentially what it means is the way that a society or a culture has created meaning is by saying that this body means this. Mm -hmm. Or these clothes mean that um, this job equals this body, right? And so there's a kind of a very particular configuration of signs and symbols of which our bodies are, are part of that begin to indicate that. But that's not a fixed system, though, right? right? Because, in fact, part of also what's happening is my own body is saying, well, wait a second, I'm going to respond to and either I'm either going to live into that those kind of um, meet those signs and symbols and reinforce them by buying certain clothes, by picking up certain words, certain languages, doing a certain job, or I'm going to resist them. I'm going to say something different. I'm going to dress in a different way. I'm going to be this, do this job instead of that job. Um, and so identification is this kind of constant pushing and pulling of these messages, of these formations, and are either our kind of acquiescence and in living into them, oftentimes unspoken, right? Never, like, this is never a decision like, oh, this is what the culture is telling me to do, so therefore I'm going to do it. Um, so where does, this, where does this all come from? And as much as I would love to say, like, I spent my whole career thinking about patriarchy, um, I probably spent most of my career thinking about about race and then was reminded by womanist and black feminist scholars by looking at kind of and tracing these kind of the different kinds of options that black biracial men and women had in terms of navigating their body, realizing that there's something that's going on here. And as much as I thought like I was woke and like down for it and supportive of, of my partner um, in her ministry. Um, what I actually came to find was over time, and this was like, we'd been married a good 10, 15 years, that in actuality, like my wife followed me. Mm. My wife cooked dinners. My wife, you know, planned like when we were going to clean for things and like, and took all of the emails and correspondences with the kids' schools to figure out when they were when to bring cupcakes for their birthdays, um, and that's not this is like so this isn't that this is pretty recent in some ways like within the last ten years, and so then the question is well like how, crap like I knew better, <laughs> right like how like how does this happen, and and we've actually seen this even with our sons you know that they grew up in a in a progressive household where like you know. I was cooking by the time they were getting older, like I was cooking, doing all the stuff, you know, so they should have a really good blueprint. And, and you and I were saying, like, if you ask them a question, they would say, absolutely, like, this is, you know, they would check all the boxes. But 
in actuality, there's still tendencies to mansplain. There's still tendencies to like not necessarily have to think about the rhythms and patterns of a household, you know, by presence, you know, make sure that somebody's sick in the same way that oftentimes like a daughter might have to. And, and so Gail and I, we, we've been kind of like puzzling over this for a while and thinking about my own formation. And I realized that part, I, I think that there's something to simply the reality that when you walk out the door, men do not have to worry about an innumerable number of things, right? There's just things that we simply do not have to account for. We don't have to account for how we're dressed. We don't have to account for how loudly or boisterously or quiet that we talk. In essence, we always win, right? If I'm really shy and, and, and don't want to talk to anybody, like, oh, he's shy and, you know, he's young, he'll grow into it, right? If I'm kind of really wild and, like, all over the place, they're like, oh, he's wild, he's just sowing his oats, like, but he'll, but eventually he'll be ready, right? And all of, so all of the mistakes that I make, all the little social faux pas, like, all of that stuff gets all just kind of brushed under the rug. Um, all the while, no one really asks anything of me to care for a grandma to like make it to help with dinner, to to think about what other people are saying, um, and so all of a sudden, so something about that profound lack of pressure, and and frankly connection, fosters I think a kind of personhood, a kind of way of being in the world um, that I think is the essential kind of mark of patriarchy, which is essentially we don't need anybody. Hmm. Or the only people that we ought to have in our lives are people that we get to determine who, who are ought to be in our lives. Um, and so we should live lives without any kind of contingency. And that is, that's a powerful drug when you've been, yeah. when you've been breathing it in for, for years and years and years. Yeah. And then you add Christianity to that, that has like all these power in words that say how significant you should be. And it is brutal. And I and I want to name, too, that, like, this is part of why violence against queer folks becomes so intense, because if men are expected to be this certain way, to perform this certain way, and to engage in this certain way, queerness often counters that and says, like, hey, there's there's another way to be a man, and there's, and there's a risk that is involved in that because of patriarchy. And so I think that while many men walk through the world without consequence, it makes it such that queer folks walk through with more consequence because it counters that kind of narrative of like, well, men are just going to become manlier. They're going to become more men. They're going to like, I don't know, it feels like this very Victorian or like kind of Renaissance, like old timey idea that like, yeah, men are going to do what they want, but eventually they're going to move on to like, quote unquote, more noble pursuits. And I think that Christianity has that same kind of weird like men will just naturally come into themselves sort of narrative. And I saw this tweet the other day by this asinine pastor. I think he's a pastor. Maybe he's not. Maybe I just, you know, looked at his bio and I was like, you seem like, let's just see, is it, is he father, pastor, husband? And he's very close. His name's Owen Strachan. And he wrote this tweet that that said this. And I think this is where it starts to intersect the like pole of Christianity and how it shapes the very nature of what you're talking about. This is the tweet, and it's terrible. I'll just say that ahead of time. God has staked everything on men. Strong men are the foundation of a strong marriage. Strong men are the foundation of a strong home. Strong men are the foundation of a strong church. Strong men are the foundation of a strong society. God has staked, in all caps, everything on men. 
<laughs> then he says, another way of saying this, Christ is the spiritual foundation of everything, and men are the, the anthropological foundation of all of these institutions. In Christ, men hold fast to and are head of one wife and family, men lead the church as elders, and men must lead in public. And I felt like Owen was trying to do something theological, but I was like, you're really just telling on a culture that has taught you a lot of things in a lot of different ways. So yeah, tell me what tell me what you're hearing and how that intersects with what you're talking about, because it feels very palpable to me. I'm sorry. Um, where to where to even start? Holy moly. So that means all my laughing, my my hilarious, ridiculous laughing was also <laughs> muted. I need, I need to recreate recreate it just just to be really really clear. It's, it's pretty uh, bad. So so let me let me start with maybe like a theological start starting point, and especially in terms of how Christianity perpetuates patriarchy, because I think it I think it's important to say that patriarchy is not a peculiarly Christian creation. So I, I think we all need to like, you know, as we kind of deconstruct everything. We also think that Christianity is, is everything can be blamed on Christianity when human beings have found lots of different ways of, of jacking people up. So now the question is, well, if Christianity isn't the sole arbiter of it, what is its, its unique evil contribution yes. <laughs> to, to, to this scenario? <laughs> and, and so one of it is that you know, it's it's this i this idea of the kind of self sufficient, untethered, autonomous person is completely untenable, right? It, it's just, it's simply not true. And then it gets it gets slapped onto God, right? Because God, and so this is where we get all these theological arguments about God's omnipotence. You know, whether or not God can suffer. You know, in terms of like God is. Is, is it impacted by us in all of these kinds of ways? And, and all of these questions are deeply patriarchal questions, right? And, and so, but part of it, though, is that if we think about the utter violence that's necessary to maintain that lie, right? Because essentialism, ontological arguments, what they have to do in order to be true is to always be true. Mm. Um, and when they're and when they're not, it creates a problem, right? And so what patriarchy does, and especially Christian patriarchy, is it divinizes the quality, and then demonizes anything that's that that exists outside of that, right? That could seemingly disprove it. Um, so then, what ends up happening, and and I, and I think this is such a, an important aspect of we think about queer folks, or especially, you know, the the violence of against trans women. Um, per- perpetrated by men because in, in a way, right, that's the crux of, of a kind of one's masculinity, right? It's a kind of an affront, right? And what happens when one is a fr- is confronted with this, this different possibility of masculinity, of what it means to be a man, is in order to maintain the patriarchy, you have to kill the thing. Mm-hmm. And so, so murder, um, beating... Um, uh, the the kind of appropriation of resources that ju- that justifies certain kinds of death. This, these are all outworkings of a patriarchy that has to maintain itself through violent means. Yes. Now, coming back to you know Owen, what's his face's ridiculous mantra? <laughs> you know, think about like think about all of the all of the things that one has to overlook for his statements to be true. 
right? It's actually stunning. The, the kind of blatant, continuous ignorance that has to happen. So even if you say, like, so even if you, like, start at the very beginning, right? And, you, and they want to start, like, oh, Adam was the man. No, Adam, Adam, there was something wrong with Adam. Adam was the first thing that God said wasn't good. Now that not maybe like not Adam in 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 so in himself wasn't wasn't good or bad or bad, but it's like no Adam isn't a mago day. Now even if we subscribe to the fact that Adam was in fact a man, which I think we've 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 we show that it's more this earth creature. But you know even in terms of their world, there's already a problem. Then you look at the kind of succession, the kind of the kind of Judaic understandings of like successions of things as slowly improving, then that means the woman is the last thing that gets created, which means that she's actually the best, right? Or you kind of go to the Jesus part of it and you look at, look at Mary. Mary's the, Mary is the archetype of what it means to be with God. Hmm. It's not Jesus because we can't be Jesus, but we can be Mary. And so Mary is the archetype. Mary is the one who has the job that Joseph has to follow, right? Um, Joseph is not the head of the family. He's not saying, okay, Mary, <laughs> like, I approve of you having a child and being the mother of God. And, like, I really think that we should all go to Egypt, blah, blah, blah. Like, no, nah, like, Joseph is not in charge. Uh-uh. And, and that's okay. And so this idea that somehow masculinity like requires us a kind of strength which in this tweet means also a kind of autonomy it's just a lie and it and and that's where i think so much of the violence comes is because the the lie can only be maintained by violent means yeah well and i think we see that really clearly even in all of these like i I was doing some research for some other projects and you know, over 250 anti-trans and LGBTQ laws have been put into place or have been like at least brought up in the last, you know, four months or whatever of this year. And I was thinking about like why that is. And I was like, oh, because a bunch of like white men specifically are terrified of what they see as these like, frankly, these threats to to masculinity. And they're using their Christianity as the tool to idealize, to essentialize like you're talking about. And it feels like, again, all the things that you would have to believe to be true are so intense and so blatant. But when your worldview says, like, you know, men get to lead, and you've only ever had examples of men leading and, you know, people who, you know, I I think I grew up in a church culture where whenever someone would get a divorce, it was always the woman's fault. Like, it was, Mm -hmm. like, if a pastor got a divorce, it was because, like, she wouldn't submit. And so even that kind of language of, like, submission and love and like that Eggridge's book, Love and Respect, it was like, well, she didn't respect him enough. And like men need respect and they need leadership. And so it was always the fault of women. And so I think what I saw often was these Im- these uh, implicit threats to what happens when you don't live into a patriarchal model. Because I think there are ways that men are taught to lean into masculinity and patriarchy. And there are also ways that non-binary folks and women are taught to lean into the same thing for the sake of our own survival, which creates a Christianity that then 
always has a subservient group of people. And what's what I thought was funny about this, like uh, Owen, I like they were calling him just like by his first name. Uh, this Owen tweet is that someone just like corrected it really quickly, and they were just like, "God has staked everything on Jesus. Jesus is the strong, the foundation of a strong marriage. Jesus is the foundation of a strong home." And I'm like, okay, that also gets into some kind of weird. It doesn't it doesn't get you as far away from the idea as like you think it would. But I was like, oh yeah, even if you just. Brother Owen has made man the pinnacle of all things rather than Christ. And that felt really clear to me. And it was like, it felt very clear to me in my own upbringing. Yeah. And I, and I think that's the, the, the thing about patriarchy. Although I, I, I feel like part of what we also have to name here is, is what is, what is it about kind of our human nature that, that makes something like patriarchy, something like racism function um, and, and I think we, we actually see it very much in this moment. I think there's a, there's a reason why we see these rash of, of, of anti-LGBT laws, these rash of anti-trans um, laws, of voter restrictions, of, of all of this stuff, is that like there is something about us as human beings that requires a kind of coherence and a kind of stability in order to survive, right? Mm. We... We, in the midst of all of the ambiguity, in the midst of all of the the uncertainty, we have this kind of instinctual tendency to try to find pattern, right? Mm. Or to create pattern. And essentially, this is what language, this is how language emerges. This is how a culture becomes a culture, right? So, so we're, you know, we have a, I didn't, I had never been moved to a place, never lived in a place where the culture was so kind of thick as the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I mean, you come here and you live here for a while. There's there is a way of being and a way of talking and a way of interacting, um, and and so I think that part of what we always have to I think what we have to kind of really respect is not so much the respect the the consequences of that tendency, but I think we have to respect the power of the tendency. Um, is that we want to make room. We want to have a home. We want to know what's going to happen next week and the week after. And I and we want to know how we fit into that pattern, right? Mm. Um, and so because of that, though, we end up having, we end up creating and excising and cutting off things that interrupt the pattern, that mm. show us the things that aren't necessary, that, that, where the pattern isn't maybe as as easy as easily understood as we as we tended to think, um, and so I think that part of of one of the big things I've been thinking a lot about lately is just how do we begin to think about and hold the complexity and uncertainty of our world? Because I think that that underlying need for certainty, that underlying need for kind of coherence, is part of the reason why, as you mentioned, so many. Um, marginalized communities buy into the the dominant formations, right? Mm. I mean, my partner Gail, she'll, she will say again and again that some of the people that pressed hardest against her in her leadership as a woman were women, right? Yeah. Because we all want the coherence. It makes, in a way, it makes our lives a lot easier if we know what everybody has a role. But if the roles are fluid, you know, and we need to have 
15 different options instead of two different options. It's more expensive. It takes more time. It requires more bandwidth for everyone. Yeah. Um, and that takes a lot of practice as a, as a society, as an institution, as a community to cultivate those values um, in ways that unfortunately the divinized notions of masculinity are constantly resisting. And I think that that's what this rash of, of kind of legal violence is really showing is that people's certain ideas of who them who they are and what the world means is getting pressed and fragmented and complicated in ways that they really frankly cannot comprehend. Yeah. Um, and they're gonna kill people um, to try to maintain their own sense of, of, of themselves. Totally. And I think one of the skills that we often lack and that is really not a part of a lot of patriarchal culture or hyper-toxic masculinity is the, the ability to negotiate, to negotiate oneself, to negotiate one's relationship to another person, rather than saying, these are the distinct categories that this should all fall in. Like, I play this role, you play this role, as though, like, we're selecting, like, fighters in a video game who are, like, a certain fighting type or something. Mm-hmm. It's like, we actually have to negotiate in real time who we are and the ways that masculinity and patriarchy do or do not serve us or do or do not serve our relationships or do or do not create flourishing for all people. And I think that oftentimes I see men who would rather cut off relationship or cut off parts of themselves, like you said, rather than do the hard work of negotiating rather than forcing, because I think so much of patriarchy is compliance and forcing oneself into a particular mold that I don't think actually fits for who most men actually are if they were to give themselves space to know themselves. Mm -hmm. But a tenet of, I think, of patriarchy and especially biblical patriarchy is that Knowing oneself matters less than knowing God as though those things are distinct. And so if you just stare at the Bible every morning and if you just think, you know, pray without ceasing and if you do whatever thing, then like you're going to become a better version of yourself because you're basically just going to be God. And so it makes sense to me that Christian patriarchy results in a God complex because men are always taught to look outward toward a God who is not visible while their visible and physical and tactile self is just kind of always waiting to to become more and more. And I think that's one of the tragedies of masculinity and toxic masculinity in church for me is that you believe yourself to be like falling so deeply in love with God, but you neglect everything around you. I, you know, uh, a friend of mine, Crispin Mayfield, wrote a book about attachment theory and how like we attach to God and how our early formative relationships shape how we engage with God in different ways. And he tells the story of A.W. Tozer and his and his his wife and his wife, like uh it's like how everybody in, in movies refers to it's like women are never people. They're always just like his wife or his daughter or whatever. It's like very Liam Neeson. But uh I got very distracted by Liam Neeson, <laughs> as one does. But he's describing A.W. Tozer and his devotion to God that is like sitting in a study for hours and praying and being super intense and like, you know, in pursuit of God. It's like all of this like very, you know, he's one of like the main theologians I was taught was like the best guy because he loved Jesus the most. And after he died, his wife remarried and her reflection upon his death and her remarrying was, you know, Aiden loved God, but my new husband loves me. And I was like, oh, that is the crux of a lot of biblical patriarchy is that men are taught to love God above all things at the expense of all other things in their lives and all other people and relationships in their lives and end up living very self-deprecating, never feeling like they're enough. 
And unlearning that stuff is really hard when it's all enshrined in this very fluffy language of like love and devotion and like gentleness and tenderness with God and prayer. And so it's pretty hard to be like, and all that stuff isn't doing for you what you think that it is. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, yeah. And that's, I mean, and it's such a powerful depiction of, of in some ways, what's kind of wrong with this kind of almost priestly function of, of masculinity, right? That Ooh. as long as the man, the man was the proxy for the family's relationship with God, right? And as long as the man was attentive to God, then the family was right with God. But it didn't matter if the dad, if the, if the, if the man beat the wife, like told, like berated the kids, right? Because as long as he had this kind of standing, um, then, then yeah. And, and I think you're absolutely right. And it just, it kills everybody, right? Um, I mean, I think part of when I started, and I'd always like been playing with like my kids and, and taking care of them. And so it's not like I was like off only studying, um, but in this kind of patriarchal kind of, I think, awakening or awakening to the, the ways that patriarchy was continuing to live in me um, was was when I had to kind of shift from, um, you know, helping out Gail with the kids to like to really initiating, thinking about food, planning, planning things. Um, it meant that like all of the studying, all of the all of the writing, all the reading had to slow down a lot, um, and I had to actually become a t- as attentive to my household as I was to the books I was reading. Hmm. And and it and something just really amazing happens in that shift because all of a sudden you realize that God wasn't just in the books, that God wasn't just in the brilliance of an idea. And in fact, actually, the brilliance of that turn of phrase and argumentation and documentation of that 800-page tome <laughs> is actually as far away as you can get from, from actual life than, you know, sitting and playing, uh, you know, pin the tail on the donkey with your kids um, as boring, as mind-numbingly boring as that <laughs> is, right? So it doesn't mean that it has to be amazing. It just means that, like, there's God there in some sort of way. And as we kind of started to move through all of through these kind of processes, I actually started to realize that, oh, wait a second, like I actually love cooking. I actually love like household rhythms. Like in, in another version of the world, I actually might have been just a house husband and, and, and might have actually been really, really happy doing that. <laughs> Right. But it, but in a very real way, the world never gave me that option. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so for me, the option was, especially when I became when I felt called to ministry was to become a pastor. When I shifted into the academy, it was to become, um, you know, a research one prolific professor. And all of those things have costs. Yeah. There's no there's no free highway to that. Um, and all of those costs were really both for Gail um, in terms of material sacrifices, things that she was not going to be able to do. Uh, But they were also for me in terms of a kind of unrealistic possibility of who I had to be in a container that I was going to have to press myself into that was going to squeeze a lot of myself out and cut it off. Um, And that's just a really horrible, it's a horrible way to live for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, and, and one thing I'm curious about, because as you talk about this kind of transition from even like from recognizing that, you know, Gail, I, I always call her Pastor Gail, that Pastor Gail, I'm just going to go formal because that's where I'm at. You, you, you do it. <laughs> I got to do what I got to do. Uh, like when you realize Pastor Gail was doing all of this kind of uh, traditionally woman's work or whatever, and you started to do those things, I hear you saying there's this revelation of God, but I imagine that there was also some dissonance for you that happened in that. And so I'm wondering in, as a person coming from a patriarchal structure, understanding worldview embodiment in a lot of ways, what were some of the things that you ran into in that that time that were challenging or that you had to pretty actively unlearn? Or like, what feelings did you have even as that was all happening? Well, and the feelings maybe that I'm still, I'm still having. Um, Well, and I think that, so some of it is that is, is having to be, having to recognize that I don't always have to know something. Um, And, and this idea of kind of being in charge is, is not always coming with the idea that everybody follows. I mean, and this has even actually worked itself out even in my teaching in the pandemic. I mean, I was, you know, I was formed at Duke kind of in this like golden age when you had all of these amazing professors and you would you come into class and just wait for the lecture that was going to just explode your world. Um, and and so so I patterned myself after that and, and prided myself on coming in with lectures, with ex, with class experiences that and we in some models we call them the sage on the stage. And I was I feel like I was a pretty good sage. I could tell a good story, draw people in, all of that. And then the pandemic completely wrecked all of that because I couldn't be in person. I couldn't bring a presence. Um, but then something else happened was I found that students actually wanted to talk to each other more than they wanted to hear from me. And and I think that this was a kind, and, and in a lot of ways, this is kind of a turn that this patriarchal kind, this awakening to patriarchy helped me to, to recognize early. But I have to admit, I'm still trying to figure it out. When I send them off into small groups to talk about something, I feel like I'm not doing my job. Yeah. I feel like I'm yeah. like, and, I, and because I'm not doing that, I feel like, well, wait, do I even have anything to offer? Um, because the knowledge isn't coming from me, it's coming from them. Um, and I think the other part of it was was realizing that, you know, and I don't know if this is a patriarchal thing or a personality thing, is that, you know, relationally, I'm just not that great at stuff. I'm trying to, <laughs> I'm trying to read people, trying to understand what needs to get said in a certain kind of moment, what it means to kind of help people feel heard and seen when I'm not in charge. Like, I can do it when I'm in charge. But when I'm not in charge, you know, doing that kind of soft labor um, around the edges is is still like it's really uncomfortable for me. And and to to stick in a space when I'm not sure, when people aren't giving you accolades, when there's not a prize at the end, um, is still a, a still a really big challenge. Um, and and one that I I hope that I, you know I have the humility to 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 live with gracefully. But um, oftentimes it was like, I know I got something really great. Don't you want to hear from me? Um, or, uh, you know, I want my family to, to kind of see me in a certain kind of way. And I'm just, you know, the guy that takes out the garbage and, and that's okay. <laughs> well, that piece around accolades actually feels really important as I think about like how pastors are formed, because I know I've been in so many Christian cultures and churches where 
a pastor will get up and have not prepared a sermon at all, will wax on what I would call like unpoetically really about something that he's thinking about that feels so profound. And then someone will come up and go up and be like, or come up to me afterward and be like, wasn't that a great word from God? And I was like, this was maybe mediocre at best, but there's this culture of like giving accolades to mediocre masculinity and mediocre patriarchy and mediocre leadership. And one of the things I used to teach my students when I was a campus minister was, I never want you to waste someone's time. Like time is the one thing that people will never get back. Don't waste it. Because I learned from particularly white male pastors that you can waste someone's time. You can own a group of people's time for an hour every Sunday and you can waste it. And that patriarchy and masculinity allow men with such low bars to waste people's lives away on what they believe should give them accolades. And I think that that becomes really challenging for men who, like you're saying, are might start to walk away from patriarchy or mas- like toxic masculinity and then want to be thanked for it or want to be given awards for it or want to be like the guy who knows the most about the thing or who can like lead other men in it and want to be thanked often. And to me, it all kind of goes back to these tropes that I see in movies really often where like, though, you know, like in a heteronormative marriage, a wife will be like, you're never here. And he'll be like, you don't appreciate that I'm providing for this family. And then like throw a chair and then she cries and then he comes and makes up for it. And he's like a bit of emotional vulnerability makes everything violent that he did or his like lack of presence somehow okay. And I'm like, that same kind of extreme trope that exists in movies exists in pastors and leaders and Christian men who expect accolades, especially progressive men who expect accolades for doing the very basic of unlearning the patriarchy that is harming them, them, their families and their communities. Yeah, and and I think a lot of times when we say we we kind of ask this question, you know, what what should people do with privilege, right? Um, you know, once you become awo- awoken to this reality, um, and, and male me- mediocrity, and I, and I I should say this, like sometimes I think we we kind of sometimes let ourselves get away with things because it's been really interesting to say like when we want to blame, we'll blame patriarchy, we'll blame masculinity, but we hardly ever say men. Right. Mediocre men, not mediocre masculinity, ma- mediocre men. Right. And so, th- so even in then there's a kind of privileging where we don't want to necessarily locate the kind of fault in the people. Right. But in, in a kind of system. And so the men even even then kind of get away with things, uh, <laughs> yeah. which is which is amazing. So I, I think in my own life, there's a couple parts of it is. Is one of it is, you know, try if you know enough women who are just like killing it, right? It's really, really hard to, and then you, not only just like just doing amazing work, but then also how few opportunities they get um, to really walk with them and to listen to their stories makes it a lot harder when we become when we get either have a task to do or are in a decision making process to dis to discount that um and and so i think being able to hear these stories not just as theories but as the realities of what women have had to do the ways that they've had to work in order to get where they are um, i think is really important but i also think there's this also this there's a kind of possibility 
actually in the kind of mediocrity of of what men can get get away with i think there's actually a kind of revolutionary part of this which is you know like if i can do if i can do 50% of the work and get 100% of 100% of the praise or the paycheck at the very least right and people were like oh you know like you're home with your kids and no big deal of course you're such a, an amazing man you know like what men have typically done is reinvested that 50% either into their own lives, right? Cars, vacations, bro, bromances, you know, whatever it is they do, or back into their work to write another book and then another book, you know, write four, four more books. But, you know, what if, what if men said, you know what, I'm actually, I'm in this position. I don't necessarily have to quit for the sake of, of overturning patriarchy. You know, that's fine. But, you know, but instead of writing the five books that I could, even though I only need one book to get tenure, you know, maybe I just write four. Maybe I just write one. And with that extra time, I actually invest back into my family so that my partner can can do extra work. Because if I just do a little bit less work, no one's going to really... Everyone thinks that I'm going to be amazing. And I can use that bandwidth to help somebody else. Or, you know, you use that authority and you say, you know, you're on some sort of search committee or something. And you say, look... Like I'm just gonna I'm gonna bring you all women candidates, and and these people are probably gonna be your bosses at some point. Um, so you don't necessarily need to reproduce yourself in order to legitimize your 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 existence, right? You can actually use that privilege to create different a different kind of opening, a different kind of possibility for the organization that you're working with. Um, and, and you know, and again, it, it doesn't necessarily have to take this huge sacrifice to like quit your job, right? Cause, yeah. but, but it can, it's using that privilege in a way that creates opportunities and possibilities for others rather than continually accumulating something for yourself or reproducing yourself in some ways. Um, and I think that that's, that's an important part. And I think the other part of it in terms of men who are mediocre, like I just wish guys would realize that they're not good at stuff. <laughs> Cause everyone else does. Like I would just, <laughs> I mean, I just, I would just, it would be really awesome if people said, you know what? Like, that's not my, that's not my lane. And if it's, if, if, you know, my partner is making, has the possibility of like making twice as much as I do and actually sustaining the whole family. Like, I'm not great with kids, but I'm better, I'm better at being with kids than I am preaching. So (laughs) maybe I should just do that. And learn learn that along the way. And I think if if men started to kind of I think have a, a, a clearer understanding of themselves, I think we'd be a long way a long way off. I have another story too to talk about, but I don't, I don't want to talk too long. No, please go for it. So so this is so this is one of the things that I feel like has been is kind of part of the mediocrity, but also the presumption of of men inside these kind of patriarchal imaginations, which is. You know, like, I can't tell you how many job searches I've been a part of. And men just come out of the woodwork, white men especially, thinking that they can do that job. But so often, um, when it's women, people of color, you have to reach out to them and say, like, no, I really think you can do this job. Like, I think this job, this job is, is yours. And they're like, well, I don't know, because the job description. And there's so many ways that the patriarchal kind of system, for those of us who are marginalized in, in not any number of ways, we disqualify ourselves 
oftentimes, yeah. right? Um, and so then part of this other side of the of the mediocrity is this kind of inflated sense of 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 possibility and um, competency that is really kind of frightening. Um, and I think in especially in our kind of current moment, that's what makes me most afraid, honestly, is we have this, you know, so many women leaving the workforce, so many more jobs open, that there's a real possibility of reinforcing um, a really problematic kind of workplace environment that just kind of continually rewards this mediocrity in ways that are just, you know, terribly unhelpful. Yikes. I think you're really right. And one of the main places I see that is what in what I call like spiritual father nepotism, mm -hmm. where mm -hmm. pastors hire or like particularly who are embedded in like, you know, again, mediocre male pastors, even good, even people who are gifted and talented always develop people that they see themselves in, which I think as humans, we have a tendency to do. But when you add patriarchal power to that, it makes it really toxic. Where when I look at, you know, the formal organization I used to work for, the people who lasted the longest were the people that looked most like the people who led them. And there was this really kind of twisted thing that happened where we would use this language of like, we're trying to leave a legacy. Like all these men would be like, we're leaving a legacy. How do we leave a legacy? And legacy was less about people becoming fully themselves and more about this kind of weird stewardship of, you know, Mark gives this to John and John gives this to Greg and Greg gives this to whoever. And there's never like an expansion of who every person is. It is rather a holding tightly to the one thing you were given by someone who maybe wasn't even that good at their job, but because it worked for a time or like caused what you called like a revival moment. If you just pass that thing on and on, it felt like success. And I think that there's so many ways that like when men only develop people that they see themselves in and do that through the lens of patriarchy and race and white supremacy and even men of color who put on the attributes of white supremacy to figure out who they would lead like leads to weird stuff like i remember my boss at one point during like a pre-fall retreat for our staff was like we need to reach more white men because there aren't enough white men in our chapters i was like Something doesn't seem right about this. But then, right, of course, it was my job and I wanted to be good and I wanted the accolades. And so, like, I went out and tried to reach a bunch more white men, which was the worst. And so I think that kind of, like, mentoring culture that exists in church is a particular enforcer of of what you're talking about. And, you know, as we as we kind of move, I, I don't want to take too much of your time. And no, so it's as all we, good. I'm having so much fun. I love these kinds of conversations. Uh I think that what I've heard as people try to unlearn masculinity, mediocre manhood, like the kind of ways that were embedded both consciously and unconsciously in this patriarchal system, whether it's because of the church or not, that the Bible becomes this really interesting conundrum for people. Because I think there's a lot of ways that patriarchy has been, well, one, written in a patriarchal culture, like there's, and there's ways that it subverts it. But I think that what happens is that I hear people claiming that there really isn't anywhere in the Bible to go to like build these worldviews. So you're building them out of the culture and then you're, you know, taking the Bible and reading it through the lens of the culture, which I'm like, oh, we're always doing that. So I don't know why that's like necessarily considered a bad thing. But I'm wondering if there are theologies or scriptures that have helped you as you've been rebuilding and like learning and unlearning this kind of masculinity and patriarchy that we've been talking about. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think so. So some of it just comes from Again, like there's a there's a way that it, when you experience life with people, 
it causes you to go back to scriptures in different kinds of ways and notice things. Mm-hmm. And so, so my so my life with uh, with Gail, Pastor Gail, um, <laughs> and and just watching the things that resonated with her, the ways that power and empire interacted and tried to police her, um, like caused me to go back and and see the women in scripture in really different ways. Um, to begin to see even how the you know the the male writers are are actually subverting something you know the, there there is a a kind of inversion that's happening that's really clever that's really understated in some ways but nonetheless revolutionary mm-hmm. um and so I've, I mean I've mentioned a few of these like whether it's you know rethinking um you know Eve or considering Mary especially as um as a person whom God saw, not because she was a viable womb, right, or because she kept herself so pure, oh right, but you know, but she was probably a person who, you know, like when she saw something going down on the street, like she probably said something. She probably got in the scuffle. She probably saw the ways that the the tax collectors were robbing folks and was pissed, right? She probably saw how her brothers or sisters got treated inside of this imperial world and wanted justice for them. And so when God says, like, oh, I've seen you, you're highly favored, it's because the things that piss you off are the things that piss me off, right? So it's actual. It's there's a way of reading Mary as a person. It's it's not because of her womb that God wanted to be with her. It's actually that the Word wanted to know what it means to be human by watching Mary, mm. and that's so Mary's the kind of human that God wanted to be. Essentially, that's um, so good. And and so then I'm like, oh, like what is what what what's happening here in this and then and then as i've started to learn more and more you know like reading you know amazing scholars like will gaffney who are you know showing us the 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 power and the the confusions of the ways that women um in the old testament especially um are kind of confounding works the ways that the kind of patriarchal formations of the Bible actually kind of like trying to hide and tuck away the power of, of these women's voices um, has been a huge thing. Um, and then I think especially uh, womanist theologians um, who, I mean, I mean, I think of Kelly Brown Douglas who, you know, this whole idea that the atonement, right. This kind of this, uh, this violence on the cross, which, inside of a patriarchal system is everything, right? The God, God's violence is justified and a kind of violent suffering is heroic, right? Is kind of a, the image that we get over and over again. But when, when, when womanist writers like Kelly Brown Douglas come along and they say, no, actually, Jesus died on the cross because of the life that he lived. He lived a dangerous revolutionary life and he knew he was going to get killed for it and yet lived it anyway. Um, so then, so it's through those so many of these writers that I'm beginning. I've begun to kind of see. Wait a second. There is a kind of materiality to Jesus's life, a kind of salvific reality that's in his body, like throughout his whole life, not just at the cross. 
that begins to really make me think about a much more expansive way of thinking about who God is and what it means to participate in God's life. Which makes such a big difference. I I don't know. I just feel like, and even as you talk, I'm like, I imagine that people are going to fall in love with scripture more because of those interpretations. And I think that that, like, when we start to interpret scripture in more inclusive, and I don't mean inclusive, like, politically or socially, I mean, like, inclusive of all things, like a more immersive sense, that actually helps us love God more. That the interpretations that are like, well, Paul says that, you know, Christ is the head of the man and man is the head of the woman. Like, all of that falls so flat in comparison to reality. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you're offering spaces to engage with reality differently. You also mentioned Eve in the beginning. I'm wondering if you could just give me, a, just theologize about Eve a little bit for me, because I just, I think that so much of our patriarchal notions of God's world and how we live in it are rooted in Genesis 1 to 3. And so I would love if you could just theologize a little bit about Eve just for my own personal gratification. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the th- I think of the thing about Eve that I'm always kind of struck by is that she's the one that's willing to ask the question. Right? Not so much, like, we kind of sometimes think about the tree as, oh, like, it's temptation. Eve is the one who's, like, kind of trying to draw Adam into this. Essentially, she's the one that is interacting with the world in such a way that is willing to kind of ask questions. Well, what about this? Right? What about that? Um has a kind of feeling for the earth around her that sees both the possibility and the danger of a given moment. Um, and and I wonder too, and I think this idea of, of her kind of coming out of Adam as not as a kind of secondary kind of moment, right? But But she's the one who knows that she's connected, hmm. right? Whereas I think in some ways, like, Adam, like, it's a little bit, he has to work a little harder to see the way that she's connected to him. Hmm. So I think the beauty of her life, or the way that we might say, like, she's, I don't want to say more Imago Day, but the Imago Day is most immediate to her is because she knows that she's a part of, of something. Hmm. Um, she always sees the one who she's connected to. Um and, and I think in any kind of relationship, you know, you always, and I don't think this is even just like a male-female thing. Um, in, all, in any moment of our connection, there are always dynamics of power and contingency where one person knows they need the other person. And the other person thinks that they know they need the other person. And that both of those realities are also part of faith and hope and love right? Um, That you have to kind of stretch yourself out sometimes. Um, And so in a way, like they both reflect who we are, parts of who we are, um, the knowing and the unknowing. And what does it mean to live towards one another and live towards God, right? Because it's the same relationship with God. There's parts of us that we know are connected to God. And then there's parts that are less clear, right? Like, it's, it's not clear to me that I came out of the dirt. Um, you know, yeah. until I until I until I lift someone who's been long dead. But when I see another person, they're like me. And so that connection becomes really apparent. And so it's both the unknown connection, the unseen connection, and the visceral bodily connection that constitute who we are. And we need both. But I feel like Eve is always that reminder of the visceral connection. I am not who I am without you. 
That's so good too. And it makes me, I've been thinking about this story a fair amount and that idea of connection, like even Eve is connected to the world in a different way than Adam is. And like Adam is among things, but Eve is connected to them. Like even the role that Adam plays, he's like, he's naming things. And I think so much of patriarchy is really like naming and categorizing. And like, I wonder if like Adam's sense of self actually starts to happen, like this kind of his his sense of self happens as he's like naming and categorizing in a way that gives him that he assumes gives him power but eve is the one who can actually like create new life that she's the one who can she can create she can innovate she can ask questions she can engage and adam is kind of stuck in this position of like naming and not really knowing how to interpret all of the things and so i love that interpretation of eve and i think it's just a more redemptive one than well now you're gonna have cramps with your period and pain in childbirth you know it just it feels like this weird punitive right even the punitive interpretations of genesis one through three come out of a patriarchal lens that says that people need to be disciplined into submission and so i think that that kind of reading of eve helps us to unlearn even later things that we learn in the new testament around how we interpret discipline and the necessity of discipline to create a more ordered aka patriarchal world yeah well this i mean and the thing about it is that if we're really really honest with ourselves that kind of visceral bodily connection is much harder to navigate it's much harder to know it's much harder to 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 kind of um abide because you can't control the other person right so well so whereas you know adam is going to struggle and toil in the land I mean, it's going to be a pain in the butt, but, you know, through through practice and repetition, he'll figure out a way to do it, right? Um, whereas Eve's kind of bodily, and I take this not necessarily as pain in childbirth, but there's a kind of, like, connectedness that is both the brilliance and the pain. But part of what I've, and even in that in that moment, like, I read this as, that's not just Eve's burden. Yeah. It's Adam's burden, right? Because when when Eve is in childbirth, Adam needs to be there with her, yeah. right? Adam needs to nurse her. Adam needs to kind of figure out what it is that he can do to accommodate, to make her feel a little bit better, to help ease the things, right? And if anything, that's probably the most profound abdication that patriarchy created was that somehow the men sit outside while the women do this work. And then at the very same time say that it's not actually that impressive because it's just natural, right? Whereas, look at me, I grew corn. Look at all the brilliance that that created. And so somehow like this devaluation of connectivity and the, and the elevation of quote unquote mastery, right? just continually perpetuates this whereas and so i think in a lot of ways when we come back to eve and say no wait eve is all of us again if we kind of come back to this earth creatures where the maleness and femaleness are actually present in both of these creatures is that for me i need to cultivate that connect connectedness as scary as it is because for whatever reason whether it's personalities whether it's biology those kinds of relational cues are not always easy to do, but I need to lean into that and be okay with pursuing the connectivity because every single person is a universe into their own. Um, and and sometimes that can be scary for us to think about. And so then it becomes very easy to say, oh, let me just do this one discrete task because I can master that. Oh, and by the way, that one discrete task is also what it looks like to worship God. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, I think that's part of why like trans manhood confounds uh, Christian men specifically is because it, it takes these like, where like a man can give birth, it takes this kind of connectivity, this um, essentialism, like we've been talking about the whole time and says like, actually, there's like more to life than that. There's more that you have to learn. There's more space to learn and engage and nurture and show up and just like disengage with mediocrity. And so I think there's like lots of ways that that happens. We're also going to do an episode, which I pray for me. Uh, We're going to do an episode on abortion coming up pretty soon, because I think that as we talk about masculinity and control, like so much of these anti-abortion bills are about control rather than they are about life and Mm -hmm. about like actually caring for children. It's it's about mastering women. It's about autonomy over women. It's about autonomy over people who give birth because there's so much. I, one, of, one of my guests recently said that childbirth counters masculinity because it's something that the people who do not give birth cannot control or have a window into this part of life or to the divine or this like creative function. And so we're going to talk about abortion as a part of that because I know that I, I just keep thinking in our conversation about how all of the legislation around that is is not about what it says it's about. It's about control, mastery, dominance, a lack of connectivity to real people and real stories. And so I'm just telling that for listeners who hate every time I talk about abortion because you think I'm evil and like going to hell. And that's fine. That that will probably happen more as we talk more about it. <laughs> well, and, and I think the thing that's so much of, that's so true about this is that, you know, it's not not even, I mean, so much control of women's bodies, but also the maintenance of a social structure that that allows men to remain disconnected from the lives mm. of women, right? Yeah. So, so in a certain kind of social structure, when, you know, we think about maternity leave and all of those kinds of things, like a, a child coming into the world should change a whole family. Right. It should change a whole family's sense of time, a whole family's sense of tiredness, a whole family's sense of like what can it get accomplished in a day. Right. But what the control of women's bodies does is say is that it continually justifies, well, the men will work. Right. The men will bring home the bacon. The men will kind of maintain this kind of social structure, determine who has what when. Um, And it's just such an evil, evil and and dehumanizing to everyone's kind of image of what it is and and i, I do want to say like that all of this kind of comes back to it to this when you, we first talk, talked about this ontological idea of masculinity um and the ways that it's kind of connected to god and and the thing that's so sad about all of it is it's such a narrow idea about who god is yeah. right this idea of a god is a singular narrow irreducible truth right Mm. that just happens to look like me as opposed to a god that can hold multiplicity Mm. a god that Mm. can hold all life a god that can do all things for whom there is nothing that is distant or far away right um it's just it, it is it's it's so it's sad to me and and frightening to me that we we live in a world of a christianity that's dominated by such a narrow image of of who god is absolutely oh yeah it is upsetting and kind of depressing and just so limiting for all people both structurally and functionally so as as we start to kind of come to a close what we've basically done is given like kind of a patriarchy 201 like what is some of what are some of the meta kind of narratives of 
that we ascribe to, that we engage with? How do we break those down? What are some counterbalances to those? I, don't, I always say counterbalance as though that's like something, we're not trying to counterbalance anything. We're really trying to deconstruct and reconstruct, but all of that is all buzzwordy now. So I'm trying to <laughs> redo my vocabulary to be more accurate to what I think, but you understand what I mean. I'm I got you. pretty sure. <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you have any kind of quick advice for folks who are reclaiming their theology from patriarchy, toxic masculinity, all these ideas that we're talking about. What are a few starting points that you would give folks who, especially for progressive folks who might see themselves as like pretty far along in this conversation, but who may need to take the next step in actually embodying the worldviews that they ascribe to? Yeah, I, I would say the big one, and I, and I work with a lot of students who, who are kind of on this continuum. And the thing that I always remind people is that marginalized communities have been fighting supremacies for a very, very, very long time. Like we all, I think we sometimes think that we're like, we're, we invented the game, right? And, and so because now that we see the structural inequity, the whole structure has to come down Mm -hmm. and God is terrible and the whole thing is an invention and just screw everything. And yet there are people in societies that were frankly far more violent than ours who continued to have faith. Um, and but not only continue to have faith as though faith in and of itself is a thing, but they created community. Mm. They and so the reason why they had faith was because they adopted one another's. They took care of one another's kids. They make sure that other folks were had had enough to eat. They they heard about people's everyday lives. Um, they celebrated in the small wins um, and the small moments of joy. Um, there's one of my favorite uh, uh, theologians is um, uh, Ada Maria Asasi Diaz and uh, her, her Mujerista theology. And she talks about the, the kind of political power of the fiesta yeah. um, and, and the ways that these women would create parties. And the party was saying, despite a world that doesn't celebrate you, I'm going to celebrate you. We're going to celebrate you. Um, and so as people are kind of deconstructing their faith, um, I want us to be mindful of not dismissing the people who have gone before us as somehow not knowing more than we knew. Um, they knew. <laughs> they understood really clearly. Uh, I mean, so much of the critical theory that we, we espouse these days comes from the ways in which these communities gathered and organized. They were doing the theory before we called it theory. Yes. Um, And so I think that that's really important is to go back and study those texts, to hear those stories and appreciate the faith and the hope and the love that was underneath them. And then I think the second thing of it is, is to realize and embrace that we will not have a right answer. Hmm. I think part of the realities of, of a kind of Google generation is that if we read enough blogs, have the right analysis coordinate these things invoke the right terminology at the right time that we're going to dismantle everything without realizing that in fact all of our language is fractured mm-hmm. all of our organizing is fractured and and we're not going to bring the whole thing down right now we're just not yeah. but that doesn't mean that god doesn't live it doesn't mean that our humanity cannot be embraced in the midst of all of this. Because in fact, if everything is really is as bad as we say it is, and it's pretty bad, it's right? Pretty bad. The possibility that we can actually love one another is actually miraculous. 
Because if it's really that bad, then we should all just be in the streets, Walking Dead style, every person for themselves. Yeah. But we're not. We're 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 loving one another. We're creating communities. And if we really, really want to dismantle something, we need to love one another more deeply and create and cultivate communities that are liberative, that are free, and when we, where we can discover and name the multiplicity of who God is in one another. And I think that that's miraculous work. And what a better kind of naming than just naming binaries and essentials. That, that feels so much better. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Bantam, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know folks are going to really take a lot from this conversation. And I, don't, and I say take a lot, not in like a give and take, but more just in like a maybe more in the spirit of Mary, having things to ponder and to hold for a long time. And, uh, you know, as I ask everyone every week, is there anything that you would like to plug, anything that people should know about that you're doing or that you've recently done that, that people, yeah, could get a hold of? Yeah, well, uh, uh, Pastor Gail and I have, have recently written a book, Choosing Us, Marriage and Mutual Flourishing in a World of Difference. Um, and in, actu- in actuality, this is, uh, we talk a lot about our own story. And on the one hand, it's a book about marriage, um, but it's also a book about relationship and about what it just means to be a human being and that wants to find flourishing. We talk about race and gender and, um, and all of those good things. Um, and yeah, and that's what we've been, been working on, on recently. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it so much. And yeah, I'm grateful just to get to be in relationship with you and Yale and all the people that form this really special community that we're a part of. Thanks, Brandy. It's been great to be with you. Thank you for joining for another episode of Reclaiming My Theology. As always, subscribe, rate, review, tell your friends, all of those things. But also, if you have questions or topics that you want to hear on the show, please feel free to shoot them to reclaimingmytheology at gmail.com. Y'all, I love that we get to do this together, so let's keep doing it and trying to do a little bit better together. See you next time.